Hello, Redeemer Congregation. Thank you for joining us today for worship. We're trying something different for us, so I hope that you will have an opportunity to sit down and relax a bit and invite someone else to join us for this time of virtual worship. Due to the ongoing care and precautions in place regarding COVID-19, we will not be gathering for worship services this weekend or next weekend. Instead, we invite you to join us online for church at home. Our staff has been hard at work this week, providing resources for youth and children online as well. And as you have heard us talk about so many times before, we do encourage you, uh, if you have internet access, to find right now media and enjoy Christian resources for the whole family. These are challenging days with some of our folks working from home, others taking care of kids who are out of school, and others finding ways to help some in our congregation who can't get to the store or just need a phone call or a word of encouragement. These days can be a time of opportunity to pray, to learn, to grow in your faith, and to serve others. And in the middle of all that's going on stands the faithfulness of God, Without a doubt, God's love and mercy are our sure foundation. Psalm 46, 1 and 2 reminds us that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble, and we have no reason to fear. We're about to share the final message in this teaching series on the seven churches of Revelation. It's called Room Temperature Christians. And our text today is from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. So grab your coffee and tune in. And of course, stay up to date with all the latest encouragements and happenings here at Redeemer by checking out our website or our social media pages. I wonder how many of us would consider ourselves a moderate doesn't sound like too bad of a label, does it? A centrist, modest, reasonable, restrained, mainstream, non-controversial. You might say, well, I'd rather be a moderate than an extremist. Although it com when it comes to politics, we know that the moderate has become almost an extinct species. You're either conservative or progressive, or maybe libertarian, but you're probably not a moderate. Few politicians advertise themselves by saying, hey, vote for me, I'm a moderate. But are you a moderate Christian? Maybe it depends on how we define the term. In the New Testament book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Another translation says, let your moderation be known to all people. What the Apostle Paul means is this, live with a gentle spirit and be considerate of others. Don't always demand your own way. That's the sort of moderation we should all desire. However, there's a kind of moderate Christian that is not so good. It's the person who only wants a little bit of God. Not enough to explode our soul or disturb our sleep, but just enough to make us feel warm and fuzzy, make us feel like we're a decent human being. A moderate Christian has a moderate Christ who makes moderate demands on them. 
And they keep Jesus at arm's length as well so that this religion thing doesn't get out of hand. I've heard it said that the weather, the wealthier we are um, as a people, the more susceptible we are to becoming moderate Christians. And that's exactly what happened at a place called Laodicea. This is the final message, as I said, in this series on the seven churches of Revelation. And of these seven churches, none receives a more scathing condemnation than Laodicea. Located 90 miles east of Ephesus and 45 miles south of Philadelphia, Laodicea was a prosperous city, known for its mineral springs located just a few miles away. Using a system of aqueducts, the city leaders piped in water that was hot when it came bubbling out of the ground, but lukewarm when it arrived in Laodicea. Outwardly, the church in Laodicea appeared to be strong and prosperous. Clearly, the people who worshiped there were happy. Uh, they were blessed. They lived in a town that others envied. It seems that this church drew some of its members from the wealthier families in Laodicea. And unlike Smyrna, there seems to have been no persecution. Unlike Pergamum, no false doctrine. We find nothing corresponding to the gross immorality of Jezebel and her corrupt legions in Thyatira. Laodicea was a comfortable place to live and a comfortable place to go to church. But that combination made Jesus sick to his stomach. So let's take a closer look at Christ's message to a church filled with moderate Christians who had settled for just a reasonable amount of God. Chapter 3, verse 14 says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. Amen is usually the final word of a prayer, isn't it? But it means much more than, I'm finished, or let's eat. Amen is a sign of an agreement. When I was a kid, there was an older gentleman in our congregation whose name was Albert Martin. And about every 15 seconds during the preacher's message, he would lift his hand and shout, Amen! Amen! He had done it so long and so often as kids we believed he could do it in his sleep. But it was his way of saying, yes, I agree with the preacher. What he said was true. Or maybe it was just a bad habit, I'm not sure. But here Jesus calls himself the amen, meaning Jesus Christ is indeed the last word, the last word in human history, the last word in our personal life. Jesus is the last word, not cancer, not divorce, not bankruptcy, not death, not even hell. Jesus and Jesus alone is the last word in your life and in my life. Jesus is the final amen to all that God has said. And because he is the faithful and the true witness, we can trust him completely. What he says is true, and all that he says is true, and it is true all the time. For the church at Laodicea, it means that when Christ issues his scathing denunciation, he can't escape. they can't escape by saying, hey, that's just his opinion. No, that's the word of the Son of God, 
who is the faithful and true witness in all that he says. My, my words don't carry that weight because I can't claim to speak infallible truth. But when Jesus speaks, the church must listen because he speaks only the truth. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. This last phrase means that all creation comes from his hand. He was there in the beginning. He was there before there was a beginning. He was always there. The universe owes its very existence to his mighty power. He is sovereign over every bird that flies, over every fish that swims, every flower that blooms, and every rabbit that hops through the forest. Not only is he sovereign, but he is the glue of the universe. If he stopped holding it together, the universe would fly apart. Do you enjoy breathing? I hope you do. You breathe because God gave us life and breath. We owe everything to him. When he speaks, his word is true. It's absolutely authoritative. Now here comes the indictment. Look at verses 15 and 16. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now I've often wondered about the meaning of those words because I wondered why Jesus would say, I wish you were either hot or cold. And then the thought came to me, what's another word for lukewarm water? It's room temperature, isn't it? What do you need to do to make water room temperature? Absolutely nothing. Leave water alone and it soon becomes room temperature. Suppose you want hot water for a cup of tea. You've got to do something to make it hot. You've got to put it in a pot or on the stove or put it in the microwave. Hot water never becomes hot all on its own. Suppose you want cold water. You've got to do something to make it cold. You've got to put it in the refrigerator or put ice cubes in it. Under normal circumstances, water in our homes doesn't become cold if left to itself. So here's the indictment. The Laodiceans were not guilty of some intentional sin, such as committing immorality, or sleeping around, or promoting false doctrine, or welcoming false prophets. In order to be guilty of those things, they would have had to do something. You have to make some sort of decision to move in that direction. How do you become lukewarm? Just do nothing. And that's what you'll become. A lukewarm Christian is nothing more than a Christian who's at room temperature, who has become just like the environment around them. Rather than changing the world around them, they slowly let the world change them. When confronted with eternal riches in Christ, the Laodiceans had settled for just a little bit of God. And to make matters worse, they were happy about it. Some churches take the middle of the road, believing the truth of God, but unwilling to take a stand for it. The church at Laodicea had become a church that followed the old saying, just go along to get along. That's the very definition of moderate Christianity. 
So why does Christ hate lukewarmness so much? Mostly because a person in this condition doesn't even know it. We slip into a state of such total indifference that we don't really care about our own spiritual condition. Nothing matters to us. After all, by, ne by definition, room temperature is a comfortable place. It feels right. We're the same as everybody else around us. Not too cold, not too hot, not too extreme. We're doing just fine, or so we think. And here's the sad part. We're unreachable unless someone shocks us out of this condition. And so Christ says that he will spit us out of his mouth. Now that will get our attention in a hurry. Nothing like this was said to the compromising church at Pergamum or even the morally corrupt church at Thyatira. In some ways, they were more reachable than the comfortable Laodiceans. At least they could see the error of their ways because it was definite, it was clear. Not so with lukewarmness. As I thought about this, it occurred to me that this sin is especially prevalent among long-term churchgoers. After all, once we've been in church for a few years, we know all the ropes, don't we? We know how the system works. We know the lingo. We know where to sit. We know how to get along in a worship service. We know the machinery of how the church works. What once seemed new and exciting to us now is kind of old hat. It becomes as comfortable as an old shoe. I realize that I'm prone to lukewarmness as anyone hearing this message today. I've been a Christian so long that it's easy to take it all for granted. And what amazes new believers may not amaze me anymore at all. So I pray, even as I speak these words, Lord, show me the truth about myself. Scrape away the buildup of indifference that blocks the work of your spirit in my life so that I might not find myself spit out by Jesus. Look at verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Here Christ reveals that the heart of the problem is in our heart. And until the heart is changed, nothing else is going to change. Notice that little phrase, you say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. Arrogance had blinded the Laodiceans to their true spiritual condition. See, money has a way of doing that to all of us. Money is almost hypnotic. We can't take our eyes off of it. We love money because with money, we can buy whatever we want. Money does crazy things to people, even to really nice Christian people. It makes us think that we're doing better than we really are. It insulates us against the pain of the world around us. It gives us proof that we must be doing something right. But let's be clear on one point. Money is not the problem. Money is just little pieces of paper covered with green and black ink. It's not money, but the love of money that gets us into trouble. And I doubt that the church at Laodicea was doing well compared to uh, some other churches in Revelation. But the very thing that gave them prosperity created a chronic wasting disease in their soul. 
they would have been better off to be poor like Smyrna and to know God's blessing than to be rich and rejected by Jesus. And the worst of it was they thought they were doing just fine. In our day, they, they would be the big church with a nice building, a fine parking lot, a big staff, a large budget, many programs, and a good reputation in the community. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But this passage ought to remind us that a successful church is not always a church that God approves of. So here is Jesus' invitation. Jesus says, wake up. Look at verses 18 and 19. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness. An, oil, an ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. I correct and I discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Laodicea was a city that was known for primarily three things. Banking, Jesus' reference, gold refined by fire. They were also known for beautiful garments made of wool, and he references white clothes to wear. And they were known for eye salve, salve to put on your eyes for healing. Jesus touches the very points of their civic pride to reveal their spiritual poverty. And then Jesus says, until you see your need, you can never get better. Now I'm struck by the personal nature of Christ's appeal. If someone said to me, you make me want to vomit, I would hardly expect that same person to come along and say, but I love you more than you know. But when you love someone, you can hate what is destroying them and love them all the more. Parents do it all the time. If we see our child embarking on a path of self-destruction, we typically don't stand idly by and do nothing. We'll say something, even if we know that what we'll say will make our child angry. So it is with the Lord. He loves us so much that he won't let us ever stay the way we are. The way forward is to wake up and admit our need, and until we do that, we will never get better. Verse 20, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Here's the appeal that becomes extremely personal. It's as if Jesus turns from the church as a whole, and now focusing, focuses just on one person. And Jesus says that he's knocking, always knocking, but he's waiting for someone to come and open the door. I find great encouragement in this thought. Though others may ignore Jesus, we can still open the door. Our spouse may have no use for Jesus, but we can open the door. Our friends may be so enamored with the world that the call of Christ means nothing to them, but we can open the door. We may be part of a lukewarm church, but we can still go to the door and let Christ in. He wants to come in. He waits to come in. And not only does Jesus wait to come in, he wants to dine with us. And there's no better picture of the Christian life than this. We can have Jesus as our dinner companion every single day. We never have to dine alone. Jesus wants to share a meal with us. And not just fast food from the drive-thru, 
He wants a long meal with a lingering conversation in front of a crackling fire. Isn't it amazing that the worst church of the seven gets the best invitation? Isn't that just like Jesus? After exposing their indifference, he offers himself. It's like those games we play where someone says, if you could have dinner with any three people from history, who would you choose? And we're supposed to say something like Catherine the Great, Johnny Cash, and Socrates. It's a fun diversion. But in our text, there is only one answer. Dinner with Jesus. Just the two of us. You and Jesus talking things over while you share a meal together. What an offer. I'd like a meal like that. How about you? Then comes the grand conclusion of this letter. Look at verses 21 and 22. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Revelation 3.20 is a beautiful picture of Christ coming again and again to the human heart. He comes, he knocks, he calls to us, and then he waits. He waits for our response. Many of you have seen the famous painting by Holman Hunt in which Christ is standing at the door of an English cottage and all seems normal till you realize that there's no doorknob on the outside of the door. The door must be opened from within. So it is for us all the time. Christ comes to us again and again and again and he says, I want to spend some time with you. He calls to us, but he waits for our response. For those who open the door, Christ comes in and he makes himself at home. I find great hope here for every Christian who feels far from the Lord. In a sense, this final invitation speaks to all seven churches of Revelation, and thus it speaks to all Christians everywhere for all time. Christ still stands at the door, and he knocks, and he waits for us to come and open the door. Here's my encouragement to you today. Don't let your sin and your failure keep you from Jesus. Jesus came for sinners, and it is sinners who need a Savior. So for all who feel like you're foolish or fallen or have messed up or mixed, be, or mixed up or worn out or discouraged or backslidden or compromised or downtrodden, all of us unlovely church people, who wish and dream and secretly hope for a new start in life. Take heart, Christ has come for us. He stands at the door and knocks. Will you let him in? To those who answer yes, he comes in and he makes himself at home. And then he makes all things in our life new. If we welcome him now, he, we will reign with him forever. That's his promise. I can't think of a better deal than that, can you? We get Jesus now, but we also get Jesus forever. I urge you to listen for the voice of Jesus this morning and open the door and say, Lord Jesus, you are welcome in my life today. 
There's a short children's chorus that I learned when I was growing up, and it says it very nicely. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you've sung it. It goes like this, into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. May that be our experience today as we open our hearts to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come into our hearts today and renew us and remake us in your image so that we are pleasing to you. Forgive us our complacency and our self-satisfaction and create in us a holy unrest. Thank you for not giving up on us. Give us spiritual eyes to see our poverty and our blindness. Gently lead us into the truth about our own condition and that of the world around us. Give us broken hearts, even the heart of Christ for the broken lives and broken people and the broken churches all around us. Give us a spirit of grace and truth as we offer hospitality and invite them to enter into a new relationship with you. Heavenly Father, you made us to walk with you, to know you, to love you, to serve you. You are the ruler of heaven and earth. So fill us with a sense of awe and of wonder as we humble ourselves before you this day. We would be faithful and we would be true to you, the one and only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.